Welcome everyone to Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came, a podcast where we discuss the characters, connections, and deeper meanings of Stephen King's magnum opus, The Dark Tower. I'm Jay Russo. And I'm Sean McGurr. You can find more information about the podcast at twoguystothedarktowercame.com. You can also email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. In this episode, we'll cover book three of The Dark Tower, The Wastelands, chapter three, Door and Demon. Let's start the show. In this chapter, while Jake runs away from home and looks for a doorway to Midworld, Roland, Eddie, and Susanna follow the beam to the outskirts of a city, and there they find a speaking circle. A demon awaits on both sides. Will our crew survive? Will Roland let Jake fall again? All these questions and more are answered in this exciting chapter. Are they answered in well, this chapter? Well, we do find out if our crew survives. We do find out if Roland lets Jake fall again. Spoiler alert, he doesn't. He actually Ooh, pulls him up. True. In any other novelist's hands, I believe that this would be the ending of a book. Like, this seems like a pretty solid place to end. Roland gets his redemption, brings Jake back, and it ends the book. But we've still, we're still only halfway through the wastelands here. But it, it, it does seem like a good tidying up of these first three chapters. Jay, I was thinking about that on my way into our recording today. That's an interesting point. And the way you say it, it makes it sound like you have the utmost confidence in King to know how to best begin books and end books. <laughs> well, well, wait a minute. Don't, I don't think that those words ever left my mouth. In fact, I don't think I said that at all. I just thought that these first 200 pages make a fairly solid journey for this part of the book. And again, he's divided this book up intentionally, right? The first book of The Wastelands is A Handful of Dust, and it contains these three chapters. So it does seem like these are very right. three connected chapters. We have a very clear arc from Roland and his companions finding the beam and getting to this speaking circle, and Jake being confused and getting his way back to Roland, and both Roland and he reuniting and finding some sort of redemption there. So it does seem like its own standalone piece. And I have a feeling that four, five, and six will be the continuation of the story. While there's still enough in these first three chapters to let us know, hey, there's hints of what's to come. They haven't made it to the Dark Tower. There's hints on other things that we've seen. It, it does seem like a fairly solid beginning, middle, and end here. I would agree. And I did not say once that I had faith that King knows how to end a book. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll keep that in mind. We'll see if that continues. So we've got quite a lot happening from an action and plot standpoint here, but as is our want as critics and analyzers of the text, we're not going to focus a lot on that because we've got smart listeners who can read for themselves and, and have a good sense of plot. So we wanted to delve a little bit deeper and talk about some of the themes that we see in this section. And one of the big ones that Jay, you and I noticed was what we might call the death of Eddie's childhood. Um, there seems to be a lot of references to that by Roland and Eddie uh, throughout this chapter as Eddie continues to hear voices in his head from Henry about whether he has the confidence to finish the key and whether he can do the tasks that he needs to do. We get a flashback of sorts when Jake goes to the co-op city and he follows Eddie and Henry around and he sees how Eddie and Henry are treated. So a lot going out on there that I think we want to discuss. 
absolutely. There is the, I would guess it's almost a, a trope of Stephen King's to have his coming of age stories. And while we meet Eddie as a young man, you know, he's 20 years old when we first meet him. He's certainly physically an adult, but there's a part of him that ha- that is is arrested development, right? He has always been the little brother, and he's been the little brother to an older brother who has treated him very poorly, to say the least. So a big part of Eddie really being able to fully realize adulthood and finally finish his coming-of-age story is to, in some ways, jettison his older brother. And he's physically moved away from Henry. Henry has both died and also exists in a parallel earth that Eddie no longer lives in. But Henry's in Eddie's psyche. He's always there in his mind. He's always there taunting him and talking him down and convincing him that he's not good enough and that he's just going to be a failure at everything he does. And there's a moment when Eddie really finally starts to man up, I guess, um, in this chapter. And it's, it's a heartbreaking moment because even Roland sort of sees this mm. as it's happening. Right. And Susanna picks up on it as well. And he says, this is, this is the last gasp of this, this person's childhood. Eddie's a, this is that last step that he needed to not be a kid at all anymore and be a, an adult and assume all the responsibilities of being an adult. And there's that tiny sad moment of the last gasp of Eddie's childhood dying. And, uh, it's very n- nicely handled by King. I think he does the coming of age story so well that for him to share and construct this moment for Eddie um, is very deftly done. And it is kind of heartbreaking, even though we know that it's something that has to happen for Eddie to continue to grow as a character, for him to be successful as a gunslinger. Right. And for me, the only reason it works is because we see Henry through another set of eyes. So when Eddie has been describing Henry throughout, so in book two, our only understanding of Henry is through Eddie's eyes as Eddie tells what happens in his flashbacks, where he talks about how um, Henry got on heroin coming back from Vietnam and how he and his mother had to deal with that. And eventually Eddie got hooked on heroin and, you know, becomes this drug mule for, for Balazar. And when we, when we saw it in, book two, from Eddie's perspective, I didn't see Henry as a bad dude. I just saw him as sort of a guy who fell on hard times, right? He went to war, he got hooked on drugs. You know, he was a little bit more sympathetic in Eddie's hands. You know, he got caught up with the wrong crew. He ends up basically getting kidnapped while Eddie's forced to become this drug mule. But in this book, where Henry is seen by Jake as Jake is following Eddie and Henry around. We really see that Henry's a asshole. <laughs> like he's not yeah. he's not a nice guy. You know, he's picking on the girls um in the street. He treats Eddie really badly. Um he's a bully. He's just not a good kid to be around. Like we all have seen and known guys like that and it's people yep. you don't want to be around. And you get a much better understanding of why Eddie is sort of under his thumb and has been 
in his shadow throughout his whole life is because there was this bully that he had to deal with and he did it the best way he knew how, which was to sort of placate his older brother, his younger brother sometimes do, um, you know, let him get away with stuff, uh, point his direction towards other people and other kids and, and hope that you can stay out of the fire. And uh, that's yeah. basically what Eddie does. And when you see it from that perspective, you realize, wow, no wonder Eddie suffers so much from these voices in his head. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, Eddie's love for Henry is unconditional, and that makes it all the more tragic of a relationship because Henry is a piece of shit, and he is a bully. So he's a bully who is loved by his victim. And I think Eddie knows that he's not treated all that well by his brother, but he doesn't have you know anything to compare it to or to judge by. He doesn't have like another sibling anymore. Uh, they They did have a sister between them was killed in a car crash, but he doesn't have somebody else to say, okay, well, this sibling treats me very nicely and this sibling treats me terribly. I, I know that it's possible to have a good relationship with right. somebody. Uh, this is the only thing that he knows, the only way that he understands that this works and he finds ways to, to cope with it. We know that Eddie is very smart, very tough and he has that gunslinger steel in him, even from an early age. When Jake witnesses him as a 13-year-old boy, we even can see that he is athletic and strong and fast and super smart and perceptive. And his older brother is none of those things no. and never will be. And that's a big part of the problem. He's just a dullard who is mean and cruel. And he lashes out to the world because... It's the only way he understands how to connect to it. And he does the same thing to his younger brother, Eddie. For me, a point that King makes is that Eddie really needs to suppress these voices in his head from Henry. That's what he's working towards through his whittling of this key and being confident that he has the tool that's going to help bring Jake into their world. Um and this contrasts nicely with the fact that both Roland and Jake are hearing voices in their heads as well, right? So really all three right. of our male characters are going through these crazy voices in their heads that are keeping them from being a full person, let's say. Um, you know, Eddie's putting his childhood behind him, banishing the voice of, of Henry from his head. And for Jake and Roland, they need to banish the voices that have been caused by this paradox. And the only way they think that they can go past this paradox is to bring Jake back from our world into Midworld. Um, and so I thought we'd talk a little bit about the drawing of the four. So we've had drawings of other people into Midworld by Roland. This chapter really deals with the drawing of Jake and bringing him into Midworld and in that way sort of banishing these voices in their head. Yeah, even to the extent of what's written on Jake's door, which is the boy. This aligns with the other door markers, but I think it's like a lot less symbolic or poetic. We had the prisoner and the lady of shadows and the pusher. I mean, these are really interesting and imagery-laden terms, but just the boy. And it kind of made me miss uh, from the original tarot reading that there was the sailor. Right. And how the sailor was going to drown and all that stuff. So it would have been cool to see maybe the sailor written on this door, but instead it was just the boy. That said, the boy aligns nicely with how a lot of people refer to Jake. When Roland makes the 
decision to turn Jake from a person to a sacrifice, he stops referring to him as Jake and calls him the boy. And even Jake's father, he doesn't call him the boy, but he calls him the kid. Right. So this generic moniker, I think, works well for Jake. And uh, I guess is in that way appropriate to be the label on his door. And I wonder, you know, earlier you said how Eddie's put his childhood behind him and become a man. To a lesser extent, this is a little bit of the journey of Jake here as well, right? He's putting his parents behind him. He's literally running away from home. He's taking a gun from his father. Um, You know, he's saying, I love you, but I'm out. Um, Making Mm -hmm. decisions on his own for what seems to be the first time and really letting Cod drive him to whatever comes next. Um, He's starting to put the childish things behind him as well. I also thought it was interesting that when they do finally get the door open, Roland needs to go through the door to retrieve Jake, mm. which is exactly what he does with the other drawings. Right. He, he Roland, goes through the door, but in this instance, he doesn't go into the mind of the person he's drawing. He goes into the, the, the realm of that person. He, he does that with Eddie after first going into Eddie's mind, but this time he just goes straight into the place where Jake is standing. And he's in that space with Jake and then has to physically pull Jake out. And so Roland is continuing his, his, uh, his trend. He's using his, I guess, inherent magical power of being able to draw characters into his world. He's not the one who apparently has manifested this door. No, so that's Eddie who actually draws the door by actually drawing the door in the sand. He has to take a stick and physically draw a door and put a doorknob and a keyhole in it, write the boy on it. And, and the that, key. Yeah, and then and then put the key in. I, I'm so not quick-minded enough that when he's looking at the rectangle that he's drawn at, and he realizes he's missing one thing to open the door before he can you know put the key in, and I'm like, hinges. He hasn't drawn the hinges. That's what he needs. And I was like, <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> he needs to write the boy instead. I was like, oh. I wonder if he did draw those hinges, though, or those were on the other side of the door, maybe. They never mention it. No. So, I mean, maybe, you know, we. I think we talked in the drawing of the three how it might be foolish for us to try to understand and describe the magic of how these things work. But it is sort of odd that Eddie just has this power to actually physically draw a door and create this doorway that Jake's been looking for on his side of the world for quite some time keep thinking, oh, this door will open to a desert, and here mm-hmm. it is that they just needed to draw it, whether or not they had it to be, I'm sorry, whether or not they had to be in this magic circle where the demon lives, another speaking circle, to make that power manifest itself. It seems that that is one of the reasons King speaks of this as a thin place between right. the worlds, um, where things are more connected between our world and Roland's world. He calls it thin and, and beautiful, I think. It's hinted at, I think, in ways that these thin places might also be connected to the fact that during during Jake's vision of Eddie, when he's talking to Eddie as he's playing basketball by himself, he says, this place where I am is the portal of the bear, but it's also Brooklyn. So that makes me just think of like layers, like Roland's world is uh, layered on top of Jake's world and Eddie's world. And 
if you line them up and you can somehow see both at the same time, you can see that Shardik's lair is somewhere in Eddie's neighborhood in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. It's like the exact same coordinates on the map. And if there's a thin place between them, that's where it's the easiest to pass from one to the other. And I kind of like that as a form of imagery for the story. It makes me wonder, going back to book two then, if the way station maps to the intersection where Jake was pushed in front of the car and killed the first time. Because Jake just sort of magically appears in the way station. He has no recollection of how he got there. He's just in this way station. And I just, you know, it's not clear to us as readers how he got there. Like we assume that the man in black brought him there, but is it because of a thin place? Um, is there a doorway we didn't know about? But he just sort of magically appears in the way station. So just a thought I had of where that could be. That's an interesting idea. But there's also the fact that the man in black seems to have a different amount of and kind of magic. That's true. And Jake's entry originally was through his death. So it's like the whole process in the world of fantasy could have been totally different. So <laughs> That's true. So on Roland's side of the door that Jake needs to go through, they're in this speaking circle where another uh, demon is. On Jake's side, it's a what seems to be a haunted mansion in Brooklyn mm-hmm. that Jake follows Eddie and Henry to. They're sort of, you know, trying to decide whether or not they're brave enough to go into this haunted place and and ultimately they decide they're not and that's because Henry tells a story about how they found some people killed there and drained of all their blood and um Jake of course realizes hey this needs to be where I go and this house becomes its a, a whole demon itself and is literally chasing Jake and I think this is one of the most horrific in in terms of genre type of sequences we've seen so far in the Dark Tower series. I mean, this yeah. is straight up haunted house, demon, little boy being chased, uh, got to get through a door. Like this was literally uh, chilling to me reading this section. Yeah, this was another moment when it felt like putting on that old pair of comfortable Stephen King shoes where it's like the, this is him just, he can write a horror story like this in, in his sleep at this point and he's doing this like he's he's at the peak of his power when he's when he wrote this section so writing this very tropey haunted house type of thing he still makes it uniquely king and he, he makes it work for the story and it makes it work for this character and it's uh it's great because it, this is one of the scariest moments in the book like it it actually incites terror as you read it in a way that's very effective and you know, the, the house coming to life and trying to eat its victim, you know, it's all right. like Hansel and Gretely. And and we've seen Jake die before. So we know that there are legitimate stakes here. You know, it's not yep. like, oh, he's our main character. He's not going to die here. Like, I mean, I do think. Or maybe he has to die so he can pass through, right? We haven't figured that out yet. No, we don't. So, you know, we, we've seen Roland lose fingers. We've seen Roland lose toes. And we've seen kids die before. Like, I think there are legitimate stakes here that we don't know what's going to happen, especially when on the other side, Suzanne is being basically raped by a a demon. Um, right. And that's the only way that they can distract the demon long enough to open up this passageway for for Jake to get through. So, I mean, there's a lot going on here and it's all scary and not pleasant. Yeah. 
getting back to the haunted house thing, um, I liked how I guess it's Jake who kind of comes up with the idea of calling it the doorkeeper, the, yes. this monster that is the house. And I thought it was fascinating that apparently its physical manifestation is real in it, in that when it tears itself out of the wall to chase Jake down its own hallway and becomes a face and a mouth and a grasping hand, it's actually tearing the house apart. This isn't like the scary vision of the victim manifesting as what looks like the, t- the tearing house because there are people across the street and down the road who feel the, the earth shake and see the house start to crumble and cave in on itself. So this is actually happening, which makes me kind of wonder if the house needs to tear itself apart to chase down its victims, how is it still standing? Right. Why, why isn't it just a pile of rubble already when Jake gets there? So is Jake its first victim ever or is he just the first one that made it work for its food? Yeah. The other ones might have just been scared <laughs> to death at first and yeah, got and their like, blood sucked out of them. Who knows? Right. It did. All that informed the trailer for me too. I know I said when we did our bonus episode on the trailer, like, what's going on? What are these earthquakes? What's this house that he's in? And all of a sudden, a lot of that made a little bit more sense to me after reading this section. Like, oh, okay, I could see where this might fit into the movie. Yeah. But yeah, it's interesting. The door, the, the house is gone at the end of this. So was the evil defeated? Was it just gone away for another day? Who knows? But people were legitimately creeped out in Brooklyn that day. And yeah. I know it's pretty hard to scare a New Yorker. So, But there are some of those people who are like, nope, I'm out. Gone. Yeah, they, they noped right out of there. <laughs> UPS guy's like, nah. That's not for me. (laughs) So we hinted at this earlier unknowingly, but I think I had said in a previous episode about how each character seemed to have a part to play in the book or bringing something to the quartet. So, uh, you know, Susanna and Roland make a decision early on, like we need to distract the demon. If it's a male demon, Susanna, you got it. If it's a female demon, Roland's got it. And it ends up being this male demon. So Susanna's got to distract it. Roland's going to jump in and and grab the boy. And Eddie's really the key here, literally and figuratively, right? He's got the actual key, but he's sort of the key to the whole plan. Like he's got to use the key that he's created, hope that he's got the shape right, open the door and just work all of this out. You know, his wife's being raped on one side of him. You know, there's a boy he's never met before, except in visions coming through this door. There's the gunslinger yelling at him to put his childhood behind him. But Eddie plays a integral part here. Yeah, there's kind of a little bit of maybe accidental mythology going on here because when when all the the dust is starting to settle and they've they've pulled Jake into you know through the door, the key breaks off and uh, they look at it before it breaks and it's described as looking like a sword in a stone. Mm-hmm. And so of course that conjures up Excalibur. So I just couldn't help but think that. It's as if Eddie carved Excalibur himself before giving it to Uther Pendragon. (laughs) And does that make Eddie the Lady of the Lake? (laughs) Well, you got to think that this isn't accidental with King. He knows his stories. He knows his mythology. Roland himself is the descendant of Arthur of Eld, who, you know, might map over to King Arthur in our world. Like just so Mm -hmm. I'm sure it's not accidental. So I just want to bring up again. Ned Dameron's illustrations in this book, I've enjoyed them quite a bit. Um, He's got a nice two-page spread of the doorkeeper 
sort of grabbing for Jake while while Eddie's trying to open up the the door in the book and it's just a it's a nice spread that gives sort of the horror of that house coming to life with this face on it. I liked it a lot. So we mentioned sort of everyone's role to play here and Susanna's role is quite terrifying when you think about it. She literally has to give her body up to this demon and be raped by this cold figure. And this might be me reading it from a 2017 point of view and putting on my social justice warrior hat, but Susanna feels a little bit underdeveloped as a character so far for me in these two books that she's appeared in. We get a lot of writing from King, from Eddie's perspective, from Roland's perspective. Our last chapter was all from Jake's perspective. Um, yeah. We get very little from Susanna's perspective. There's paragraphs here and there and little sections when she's learning how to shoot with, with Roland early in the book. But there's not a lot from her perspective throughout this journey so far. And well, I think that'll change. I mean, I, I, I haven't read it yet, but I know there's a book called The Song of Susanna, and I have a feeling that that'll be a lot about Susanna. But I do feel like she is not quite as developed of a character as Eddie and Roland are thus far. That's not to say she's not interesting. I think she's very interesting, but I'd like to see more from her perspective as she's seeing things, and we don't get a lot of that. It was really interesting that you pointed that out because since you haven't read past this point in the story, and I've read all the way through to the end, I'm going back through this and I kind of already know Susanna very well. And this is just the early, you know, this is just the first steps of getting to know her character. But for, to me, she does feel fully realized because she ultimately does become fully realized. Just like every other major character in the story, they, they have their complete arcs. But since you haven't gone much further than this point in the book or, or this point in the series of books, your vision on how little her character has been developed is much clearer. And uh, so it's, it's kind of a, a good reminder to me that I sort of need to try to forget a little bit of what comes next in the story and stay more in the moment. Yeah, I guess what for me, when we hear, we know Roland is a tower junkie and he's obsessed with the tower and, you know, we've seen him sacrifice a child for the tower. Um, we've seen Eddie through his vision early in this book, understand why he should be chasing the tower with, with Roland. He and Roland have had a couple of different discussions throughout the books mm -hmm. about what it means, but it's not that I don't buy it. I do believe that Susanna's going and, and, and part of this mission, but we haven't seen enough of her saying what, what, what's in it for her. I mean, it's a pretty big sacrifice to allow herself to be raped by a demon and it's not clear that she's bought into it to me um and in, into into this whole vision i mean we've seen her shoot the gun and and feel the power that roland has when she attacks shardik but not anywhere else again that's just something i've noticed like you said it's probably going to change going forward but just something i i felt here and so how she deals with it is very interesting in this chapter basically what she does is bring Detta to the forefront of her personality. We get this description of when the demon comes, you know, she goes back into the Detta patois as she starts talking mm -hmm. and she starts referring to herself as Detta. I think 
Eddie, Eddie or Roland tells her like that it needs to come out. And it's this almost Bruce Banner, Incredible Hulk or Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde type of I'm bringing forward the more powerful, more id type of creature who can yeah. deal with this and handle it. And she really turns the tables on the demon. The demon is all about power. Its power is sex and Susanna slash Detta turns it on the demon. Yeah. And there's a, a lot of Detta's backstory that we've, you know, we learned in drawing of the three that she used to do something like this for fun. Right. With, she would, taunt the white boys and drive them crazy and there was a part of her that the that was very self-destructive and very much risk-seeking where she could have been hurt she could have been raped she could have been killed by any one of these men who she brought to who she led on and teased and then you know and then just walked, walked away out. from at, yep. at, at the you know most painful moment just to get revenge on all the white men that she that she as Detta hated. And so in a sense, she kind of has the right experience to take on this demon and do this thing with the demon that she does. It's a terrible thing and but that previous life and those those uh, things that she did uh, just for the the thrill of it in a sense, I guess. I don't know if that's the right way to talk about it, but it it gave her, I think it gave her some of the tools she needed to stand up to the experience of the demon. The only other thing that I wondered about is, as Susanna, they ask her to bring Detta forward, and we don't get the answer here, but I wonder how Susanna is different from Odetta. Is there a time when she would bring Odetta forward, and what would that mean, and what would that look like? Or is Susanna mostly Odetta with just Detta being suppressed? Or yeah. how do Detta and Odetta add up to Susanna and what did that mean? Uh, how do they fit together? Yeah. Yeah. Is it Odetta that is Susanna that's just sort of like keeping Detta at bay? Right. Or filtering the the attitude and tone of Detta? Or is it just that, you know, she's always been this one person and has all of these traits and now that both parts of her psyche are awake and aware of each other, that they're both just always present. And for the most part, she is this Susanna personality that is just, uh, I don't know. I really don't know. It's not really clear. It seems like like your Hulk analogy. You know, it's <laughs> like, okay, when we need the green guy, the green guy shows up. And when, when we need the super smart scientist, the green guy goes away. Well, I'd like to remind you that in the Incredible Hulk issue 402, there was a time when there was a smart Hulk that had both the strength of the Hulk as well as the personality of Bruce Banner. Just a little Just bit. one issue? I no. thought that was like whole years. Yeah, there was a lot of time there in the 90s when that <laughs> happened. But <laughs> Yeah, let's make Hulk completely uninteresting by just combining the best features of, <laughs> of his two, two halves. The chapter ends with Jake being brought pantsless into Midworld. <laughs> Which, by the way, that drives me crazy. <laughs> it's like, it, when Roland lost his fingers, that really bothered me. And it's so permanent that it, it still bothers me. 
But then there's Wait, the are scene you saying, when are you saying that Jake's going to be pantsless the rest of this yes. series? Is it permanent that he's never going to have pants again? <laughs> no, but like, and then when Eddie is running up the tree to get away from Shardik, Shardik like knocks one of his sneakers off, and now when Jake is trying to escape the doorkeeper, he loses a shoe, and then he loses his pants and his other shoe, and it just irks me a little bit. Maybe it's a lot that I I want my characters to have some advantage. I want them to be somewhat prepared for the quest ahead and to start it like almost naked as the day he was born. And I know we're going for a lot of birth metaphors here of being pulled through the door and all that other stuff. But does he have to not have shoes and pants? Can he just have his shoes and pants, please? You know, like Give he's Jake got a some gun. Dignity. Somehow he has a gun with him still in his backpack and his book of riddles, but no friggin' pants. Give the man some dignity. Couldn't he have packed yes. an extra pair of pants or at least worn long johns? Something. So you took me uh, a little bit off track there, but I was going to say that, you know, King's really set the stakes high here, and he's shown that by taking away Jake's pants. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that is such a classic trope. High stakes, no pants. No pants. But we end this chapter with Jake on Roland's side of the world, in Midworld. And this seems to be another important point on the quest for the Dark Tower. We've been told by. King, I think, how important it is that Roland get to the Dark Tower. In the movie trailer, we heard Roland or Jake say, this is important for all the worlds across the universe. We got a little bit of that in Roland's vision that the Dark Tower is this nexus between all the worlds. But it hasn't been clear to me what the stakes are for Roland. Like, Does he get the sense that his mission is that big or is he still just taking it one step at a time? I don't know if we've been told precisely why Roland wants to find the dark tower. Um, I know, you know, because you've read the whole series, but I don't know if it's explicitly had been set out. Like what, what is he hoping to gain there? I, I get some sense that his world has moved on and he's maybe hoping to capture some of that glory that once existed and that maybe he could stop his world from moving on or bring it back to the way it was. But is there more to it than that? Does Roland have a sense that he is the most important person in the entire multiverse? And by getting to the tower, he's going to be able to save all these different worlds? Yeah. Can you answer that without saying, well, keep reading, Sean? Well, I I think I just need to say keep reading because I think we as the readers have been exposed to some of the scope of this, certainly. When Roland has his palaver with the, the man in black in the Golgotha, he sees the earth and the universe and it keeps going out and out and out and scaling out and out and out until he sees nothing but the one purple blade of grass. And that tells us, and it tells Roland what's going on here. But then Roland immediately forgets all of it. Right. And he only remembers the pragmatic, practical part of this, which is get to the tower. Yeah. It seems to be all he cares to do. He knows that's what is important and what is necessary. The reasons why don't seem to matter. And I don't really get that. Um, I know as a character, he's ultimately practical and all that stuff, but I, I would think he would need more. 
but there's he's not the first person to go on a quest for the dark tower in his world he certainly didn't start this quest alone and he ended up alone at uh, at one point and then now he has new companions right to continue that quest with him so yeah i don't know that he knows i don't think he knows his place in the big picture no but i think he he knows the tower is of vital importance and he must reach it and then figure out what comes next just like he always does he improvises yep and i mean they've been very good about having these minor quests that they need to get through so first find the man in black to find drugs to keep rolling alive and draw three through the doors you know find the beam at the beginning of this book rescue jake um and then continue following the beam to the tower is what I guess is going to happen in the second half of this book. Um, you know, we have this city that we see. They're on the outskirts of the city um, when they come down to the speaking circle, right? I think they're sort of on a cliff and they see the speaking circle and they see uh, this town or not town. It's a big city, it looks like. Mm-hmm. So um, we've got a lot of clues to keep us reading. I mean, I'm excited to keep reading. It's just when we're in this section, it made me think, you know, w- w- what is Roland's quest? How big is it? Does he know this the stakes or not? Um, because it does seem, and again, that's not bad. I mean, he it's very personal, right? He's trying to find redemption for Jake, at least in this point, and he, he gets some of that back by rescuing Jake. Um, there's a nice part right at the end of this chapter where Jake says, you're not going to let me drop again, are you? And he's like, no, of course not. Although he then immediately says, "Well, maybe I will," <laughs> and then given the right circumstances, given the right circumstances, eh, he, I'm not so sure if I can believe that. And then you know, just to make sure that you're totally clear, a page later, Roland says, "I swear to you on the name of all my fathers, I'll never leave you again." Yet his heart, that silent, watchful, lifelong prisoner of Ka, received the words of this promise not just with wonder, but with doubt. <laughs> just in case you didn't get it, he might let him die again. You don't know. <laughs> Or yeah. if, if he's not going to let him die, he might be at least willing to if if push came to shove. So, yeah, that's interesting. What you just quoted there names Roland's heart as a prisoner, a lifelong prisoner of Ka. So, what does that mean? Is that part of what motivates Roland or guides Roland? For Roland, Ka is the explanation and the reason for everything. So, if he feels that he is swept up in this force of Ka and it's leading him in the direction of the tower and that he must find the tower because of Ka. That's all the reason he needs. But I think you and I got on this or or reached this question when we started talking about how what is it that is a worthwhile sacrifice for a character like Roland? We we get to know him inside and out as a person who has some sense of honor and and he is capable of you know deep connection with people and loving his companions and but he still seems to be willing to sacrifice them to achieve his end goal of reaching the tower and saving the tower or doing something for the tower from our perspective as the reader we know that the tower is the nexus of all things and if the tower should fall everything crumbles not just roland's world it's everything if roland understands that and makes his value judgments based on that level it's easy or it's easier 
to say, okay, if I need to kill a kid to reach that goal, one kid is worth it to save the whole universe, right? Yeah. But if Roland doesn't really know that, if he thinks he's just trying to find the end of the yellow brick road and that's it, then why is he doing any of it? And why is he and why is he willing to go as far as he goes and, yeah. and do the things that he does? So I, I think it's just a fair question to just kind of leave out there. Maybe some of our listeners might have some insight for us on that yeah. without, uh, without spoiling or relying on later books, of course. But just like at this point, is it fair to say, is Roland making fair judgments or meaningful judgments and decisions based on what he personally understands of what he could achieve or what the meaning of his quest really is. Yes. Yes. On that dour note, let's get to our fun stuff. We need a musical cue to go along with our fun stuff section, Jay. <laughs> I'll just record that. I'll use that over and over again. <laughs> over and over again. So I'll start with the fun stuff. Jay. Sure. This is in section three. We get an early reference. We say he, the quote is, he was walking through the tangled remains of an ancient forest, a dead zone of fallen trees and scruffy, aggravating bushes that had bit his ankles and tried to steal his sneakers. Dead zone? I think I heard- Was John Smith there? I think I heard that phrase before. (laughs) I also caught that little reference there. I could just see King typing away in tittering. (laughs) Dead zone. And, and it and it fits too because Jake's having a dream where he sees something that hasn't happened yet. I mean, that's very much what happened to John Smith. So yeah, um, totally cool. I'll do I'll do another one real quick. King or his editor made one of my pet peeve mistakes. <laughs> Spider Man is Spider hyphen Man, not Spider Man one word. It's like the Harvey Birdman attorney at law. <laughs> Or on Friends, when Phoebe would call it Spider-Man, he's not Spider-Man; <laughs> he's Spider-Man. Do you have a Do you have a fun stuff? I thought it was uh, it was kind of cool when the troop first sees a Billy Bumbler on the on the, the path of the beam, and of course Roland knows what they are, but his companions from the other Earth have no idea. And since they're out hunting and gathering their their food on a regular basis the first question eddie has is can we eat them and then roland tells him no billy bumblers are not good eating they're (laughs) sour and taste bad and uh and of course this is a direct connection back to the beginning of book one when roland is talking to brown the farmer out on the edge of the desert and brown makes the statement that animals that can talk are not good for eating because they're they're always tough. And he lists a bunch of things as examples of animals that can talk. And Billy Bumbler is one of them. Now, of course, this is in the revised edition of book one. In the original book one, King hadn't yet invented the Billy Bumbler. So that wasn't part of Brown's uh, advice. But. I, I like that section too, because Roland actually says he'd rather eat dog than Billy Bumbler. And Susanna says, have you eaten dog, I mean? Roland nodded but did not elaborate. Eddie found himself thinking of a line from an old Paul Newman movie. That's right, lady. Eaten him and lived like one. (laughs) Which is from the movie Ombre, which is one of the many 
Western references we get in this section. So uh, as Jake's walking through New York, he passes a movie theater that's showing a spaghetti Western double feature of the good, the bad, and the ugly. And and a fistful of dollar signs. Uh, yes, and the fistful full of dollar signs, which was a nice touch as well. Yeah. Yeah, there were a few other pop cultural references. Uh, when Jake takes his time-killing tour of the museum, he's stopped and, and quite taken with a, a painting of a train. King says that it's a painting by Thomas Hart Benton. And I'm not familiar with Benton's work, but I did a, a little bit of Google research and saw that Benton painted a lot of trains. Mm. And they all had a, kind of this really creepy vibe to them. The, the, the figures were always bent over. They looked like they were under a lot of stress or they were fleeing something or being being compelled to do something against their will as trains were passing by in the distance or in the foreground. And so I think that this fits right in with yeah. King's creepy train imagery that he keeps piling on uh, in the story. So, And also there were a couple of them that had these kind of very bright comic book-like color schemes that reminded me a lot of the original dust cover of the Regulators and Desperation books that King uh, released as a, a Bachman King companion. Right. And uh, so I don't know if there is anything there, if that's just a coincidence, but it did remind me of the cover of those books. I've got another one. What I find to be the most unbelievable thing about this fantasy horror story of gunslingers in a different time. This is from chapter 14. Eddie did not know the phrase deus ec machina. Really? He doesn't know the phrase Deus ex machina. <laughs> so Eddie, who knew the term Ors de Combat and what that meant and how that fit in, Eddie, who was able to remember that Shardik reminded him of rabbits because Shardik and Watership Down were both written by Richard Adams. Eddie, who was able to quote from Thomas Wolfe's You Can't Go Home Again. Um, he doesn't know the phrase deus ex machina. I find that a little bit hard to believe, Jay. It kind of feels like King is almost saying, I don't truck in deus ex machina. I'm leaving that out of my story. <laughs> I would never come up with anything anywhere remotely like the hand of God coming to end any of my stories. I would never base a whole eight book fantasy series on the concept of Ka and fate. Never would I do that. Yeah. I, I, I'm torn because I really like Eddie as a character, yeah. but he seems to be whatever you need him to be. Like he, he's a, you know, young 20 some year old. He spent a decent amount of his life either being bullied as part of a, you know, poor family growing up in the projects or hooked on heroin and being a drug mule. And yet he is able to pull out so many pop culture references and so many literary references. And it's like, you know, I, I know he's not stupid, but on the other hand, he seems really smart when he needs to be. But then at other times, it's like, uh, he doesn't know this phrase. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's fun. He's often, I don't know if it's fair to say he's the voice of the author, but I think King likes to flex his, his own intellectual muscles via Eddie. Um, you know, like like you said, the the Ors de Combat, like Eddie wouldn't have known that. Uh uh. 
<laughs> you know, no. he's a, he w- grew up in a poor neighborhood, went to public school, maybe didn't go to class every day, you know, spent more time playing basketball than studying. And I find it hard to believe that he, you know, spoke enough French to come up with that, <laughs> that phrase. So the rest of it works. We're we're being a little hard on him. It's all yeah. in, it's all in good fun. It's all in good fun, Mister King. If you're listening, we forgive and, you. And and to be fair, I really like Eddie as a character, and I think the smarter he is, and the more well rounded of a character he is, I think the more I have the more reasons I have to like him as a character. If he were more one dimensional, or he only knew a little bit about a little bit, I don't think he'd be as interesting. I don't think he'd be he could be really smart, but if he doesn't have any he doesn't have any knowledge to go with that intelligence there's there's less to work with less to less to experience so sure any other fun stuff for you in this section mr russo there are a couple of great lines that i liked one was there was a highway ahead a hidden highway leading deep into some unknown land and i think a little bit later on the same page he had left his home in the long light of dawn and what lay ahead was some great adventure. Mm. So this was Jake starting off on his on the final leg of his journey, but was really the the beginning of his journey to the haunted house, and then the journey through the door into Roland's world. I, I like this line, Jay. Eddie's sort of going into a little bit of a trance mm-hmm. when um, w- when they're encountering the demon and, and drawing the door, and he says. Not all is silent in the halls of the dead. Behold, the sleeper wakes. There's a monster. And it almost sounded like it was a bit of a poem, and I wondered if it came from the wastelands or something, but it's not. It's it's original to King. But Halls of the Dead is a name of a Robert E. Howard Conan book, and The Sleeper Wakes is an H.G. Wells book. So I like how King is pulling from genre fiction from the late 19th, early 20th century there that, you know, very subtle references. But, you know, having seen the Jake walk through that bookstore um, yeah. in the previous chapter where there's all these types of books and knowledge, I think it's a nice little thing that King dropped in there. Yeah, while I would have a hard time believing it if Eddie had come up with that connection, <laughs> yes. I totally buy that uh, the King would do that quite deliberately. Absolutely. There's one thing that I, I thought was an interesting throwback to Eddie's experience at the portal of the bear. When he, when Eddie puts his ear to the the door, he, he kind of goes into a trance like state and he's really disturbed by the winding down dying sounds of the machinery. He's like, there's mm-hmm. just, he can hear the hum and the, and the, the vibration, but it sounds like something's not right. Like it's sick and it's, it's, and Jake has a similar experience. He can hear the off sound coming from the portal of the bear and surmises that whatever is wrong with the machinery is affecting the rose or vice versa. Uh-huh. And I really like the bi-directional nature of how the world is moving on. Like the machinery is breaking down, which is degrading the totems of the world, but perhaps the machinery and the totems like the rose and perhaps the tower itself are just symbols that we use or the characters like Roland uses to represent the almost magic 
workings of the machinery underneath it all. Yeah. Like the the idea that if technology is advanced enough, it will seem to be magic, right? Because you don't understand the technology, so you just it just comes across as magic. Maybe these things like how the rose works, or how the portals of the 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 guardians work, or how the tower itself works, or what the tower actually is. They are represented and described as things that are like magical totems of of this universe, but maybe they're just machines. Maybe they're just machines that were built by the great old ones, the same people who worked for North Central Positronics and built Shardik and the other guardians. Maybe they built the tower. Maybe the tower is just, you know, a bunch of cogs and gears and, and pulleys. And after millennia, those things are starting to wear out and slow down. And that's what's causing Roland's world to move on. And since the tower connects to all things, it's, it's causing that effect to everything. And yeah. um, so I just thought that that was, that was sort of a, in a new angle of insight that we got from Jake's experience with the rose and the sounds that he could hear and his experience with that. Yep. And along those same lines, we get the discussion of how time is different in these two worlds as well. Yeah. That, you know, it, what the, the, the amount of time that passes in Roland's world is different from the amount of time that's passing in, in our world where, where Jake is. And again, we've already heard about how distance and direction, direction. Are, are, yeah. are screwed up, but now we're getting the sense that even time is as well. And, is it speeding up? Is it slowing down? And what does that mean as they are passing back and forth through these worlds? There, there's a rush to get to a place and a concern about time and timing everything correctly. And um, that comes into play. And, you know, Roland has also mentioned that, you know, it might be a thousand miles, but it's growing every day for us to get to the tower. Um, we need to get there faster and figure out a way to, because they're obviously not going to be able to walk as fast as the time or the distance is stretching out. So. A lot of good hints as we move away from the handful of dust section of this book. And now that we have our crew together, we're moving into book two, which is called Lud, A Heap of Broken Images. Ooh. Sounds intriguing. Nothing, nothing sells a thing better than gathering it into a heap. <laughs> and Lud. Lud. Short for Luddite, perhaps. Mm, intriguing. It's not an acronym for anything. I don't remember. We shall see. Well, Jay, that's all for this episode of Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came. Thank you. Thank you. Links to all of our contact information is available in the show notes. You can email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash twoguysdarktower, and our Twitter handle is at twoguysdarktower. If you like the show, please rate us on iTunes. Next episode, join us as we cover Book 3 of the Dark Tower, The Wastelands, Chapter 4, Town and Cotet. For Jay Russo, I'm Sean McGurr. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.